You know, I was having this dream the other night, which I was with a woman, not one I recognised as being anyone I knew, but even seen on TV or a film. Indeed, as befits someone of my advancing years, she seemed, she too seemed more mature than the fantasy women of my youth. Anyway, there came a point in the dream in which she asked me if I wanted to make love to her. My dream self responded that, frankly, I just didn't have the energy for that sort of thing these days. Jesus, I thought upon wakening, is nothing sacred. I mean, dreams are meant to be an escape from real life, but mine now seem to have started mirroring my waking life to an uncomfortable degree. What's happened to the usual parade of car chases, mad giallo-type intrigues, police procedurals and killer bears that fill my dreams? Okay, they also rub shoulders with more mundane stuff involving walking through strange, yet oddly familiar streets, conversations with strange, yet familiar people and the like. But even these are clearly fantastical and several steps away from reality. Perhaps it's all down to the fact that, with my new exercise regime, I'm sleeping better these days and not waking up in the middle of dreams so that I don't remember so many of them. Of course, we always return to the question of whether any of these dreams actually mean anything. Increasingly, I doubt they have, I doubt that they do have any significance. They merely represent the subconscious idling while the conscious mind is offline. At best, they're a form of entertainment assembled by the sleeping mind for memories, not just of real events, but also things we've seen on TV or read about in books or even looked at on the internet. It's designed to keep the waking part of the mind occupied during its downtime. As I've noted before, my dreams, possibly fueled by some of the medication I take these days, are indeed hugely entertaining, all technicolour and widescreen. Yet no matter how vivid, how realistic or how detailed they are, there's always something about them that marks them out to me, even as I experience them, as being dreams. It's got to the stage that my dream self is aware of the rules that govern them, is able to use them to manipulate in-dream events. Which is another reason why that recent dream was so disconcerting. My dream self totally failed to grasp the metal and take full advantage of the situation. Mrs. Faraday, is my father here yet? Your father? Was he supposed to be? Well, yes, we were to meet him here. It's only a matter of a few more days. And each day's an age without you. Well, your mirror can't be complaining. What's so awful about not telling her, Daddy? She wants to see you too. It's not easy, Jane. In some ways, you'll have to give up being a child. Were these the forces of evil or just a childish prank? <laughs> Why should Duncan Sanford send for his wife and his daughter and then not turn up? Why? Could Duncan have hypnotized Jennifer in some way? these mysterious surroundings, even death has its resurrection. Put your arms around your mother, child. She's had such a fright. Oh, Jennifer. The change she's wearing it must be taken from her. That's the sign of Marcosius the wolf. Was it sorcery, superstition, or black magic? There's a girl's hands, and she's squeezing a leaf. The girl, is it Jennifer? I can't tell. It's, it's all hazy. Baffled. <laughs> Starring Leonard Nimoy, Susan Hampshire, Vera Miles, and Rachel Roberts. Please help me. Over here, Tom.
baffled. A perplexing puzzle of action, drama, and mystery, which ventures into the realms of the unknown. is Baffled is likely to live up to its title on first view. Not so much because the plot or premise is particularly complex, but because it never seems clear as to what it wants to be. A cult mystery, light action adventure, thriller with romantic overtones, or crime movie with paranormal trappings. It has elements of all of these, jostling with each other for attention as its somewhat meandering story unfolds. In truth, it doesn't even feel like a film as such more like one of those TV movies cobbled together from disparate episodes of a short-lived TV series. Which isn't really surprising, it was a, as it was actually shot as a pilot for an unsold TV series. Subsequently released to cinemas in the UK as a theatrical feature, as a theatrical feature and shown in the US in a slightly shorter version as a TV movie, Baffled makes for a curious watch. Its ending clearly designed to lead into another adventure that never materialised. Obviously, the film's biggest draw is Leonard Nimoy in the lead role, most definitely not playing Mr Spock. His presence was doubtless designed to capitalise upon the popularity of his most famous role, because although Star Trek had been showing on the BBC since the late 60s, it seemed to hit the heights of its UK popularity in the early 70s, as more viewers were able to see its frequent reruns in full glorious colour. Well, Nimoy had already been seen in various non-Spock roles, most notably in Mission Impossible, where he played Paris, the master of disguise. There was still a certain novelty in seeing him playing characters with the full range of emotions. And he certainly shows them in Baffled. He laughs, he smiles. He is likely romantically involved with a woman. Yeah, he gets into fights. He drives racing cars. It's all there. He is not Spock. Because in Baffled, he plays race, racing driver Tom Kovac, who, in the middle of a race, starts having visions of an English mansion and a threatened woman, causing him to crash. Rare and occult book dealer Michelle Brent, played by Susan Hampshire, sees him interviewed about the visions on TV and immediately deduces that he has the gift and meets with him to urge Kovac to travel to the UK and try to save the woman in danger from evil forces. The rest of the film follows the efforts of the unlikely duo to try and make sense of his ongoing visions as they investigate various shady goings-on at the mansion, which turns out to be a luxury hotel, with a woman, actually a film star, played by Vera Miles, is staying with a young daughter, at the invitation of her estranged and now missing husband. Shifty characters played by various British TV actors abound. Weirdness piles upon weirdness before everything goes somewhat Scooby-Doo for a climax involving masks being ripped off, locked attics and secret passages. In truth, it's all very inconsequential and the supernatural elements feel peripheral as if they've been tacked onto a regular mystery script as an afterthought. The setup is intriguing but never really develops into anything out of the ordinary. 
the whole film remaining rather formulaic. Well, the characters played by Nimoy and Hampshire are likeable enough and form one of those quirkily entertaining crime-solving partnerships so beloved of mystery formats, there's ultimately no real chemistry beyond the, the light bantering. An Anglo-US production, it was co-produced by ITC and Arena, the company behind The Man From U.N.C.L.E. Baffled is very nicely shot in a variety of UK locations. Even the early US sequences are pretty obviously shot in the UK. Locations clearly designed to appeal to tourists. Despite some awkward narrative structure, it never gets over the fact that it was clearly designed to accommodate commercial breaks. The action feeling episodic rather than free-flowing. Director Philip Leacock, whose directorial CV included both big-budget Hollywood movies along with a number of other TV pilot movies, keeps the film moving along without too many longer. There's an entertaining and nicely staged car chase involving Nimoy driving a vintage Bentley, although in truth it's actually pretty much irrelevant to the main plot, and like many of the film's other trimmings, feels arbitrarily tacked on to pad out the running time. Well, it looks slicking looks quite slick and glossy. Its TV origins are painfully obvious in the obvious back projections in the driving scenes and some cheap looking and overlit interiors. Baffled is entertaining enough while it is on, but the resolution of its mystery is ultimately flat and underwhelming, with Nimoy's newly acquired powers left largely unexplored and unexplained. It's wild, man, wild. It's wild, it's wild, man, wild. Look and listen. 36, 22, 36, that's how you stop a wild beginning. I'm faithful, not dead. I have a simple theory. If you're not with a girl that you love, love the girl that you're with. Pictures got everything. Sometimes, 
you have a good weekend for washing out a schlock. Indeed, that's what recently happened to me. I found myself watching everything from strange continental swashbucklers with added bare breasts, giant ants, and Patty Duke in her underwear calling Alex Davion a fag. All in separate films, obviously. But I, but I rounded it all out with, this, with a pièce de résistance of a double bill of AIP beach party films. How to Stuff a Wild Bikini from 1965 and 1966's Ghost in the Invisible Bikini. These two films mark the end of that particular cycle, being the final two entries in the main series. As is often the case with long-running series, although it should be noted that the seven beach party films were incredibly made in just three years. The later entries plainly show the strain as they try to maintain the winning format or simultaneously varying the elements sufficiently to ward off staleness. Getting the balance right between the two aspects becomes increasingly difficult. Introduce too many new elements, and the format becomes unrecognisable, potentially diluting what made it, made it popular in the first place. But if the same old formula is repeated with minimal variation, then audiences will likely become fatigued by repetitiveness. Some of the six entries, How to Stuff a Wild Bikini, variations though, were forced upon it by circumstance. The series' regular male lead, Frankie Avalon, was concurrently filming Sergeant Deadhead for AIP, who only appears in a handful of scenes, accounting for around six minutes of screen time. Consequently, Dwayne Hickman stands in for him, playing an ad executive romancing Annette Funicello's Didi on the beach. The film also continues the series' uh, turn into the fantastical, which started arguably in Pyjama Party in 1964, which featured a Martian, and then continued in 65's Beach Blanket Bingo, which featured a mermaid. This time around, the framing story, which has Frankie doing his naval service on a remote Pacific island, involves Avalon engaging the services of a local witch doctor, played by Buster Keaton to ensure that Dee Dee doesn't stray while he's away. This involves the witch doctor creating a decoy with which to distract the surf dudes from Dee Dee. An empty bikini appears on the beach parading up and down as if filled by an invisible girl, for it is stuffed, so to speak, by an actual beautiful girl, Cassandra, played by Beverly Adams, who suddenly appears in it. Cassandra subsequently fails in a mission as a decoy when Frankie's main rival, Hickman rejects her to focus on wooing Dee Dee instead, but, become, but becomes the model for a campaign to ch change the image of bikers devised by Rooney and Hickman. Inevitably, Eric Von Zipper and his biker gang, the Rats, turn up and cause trouble for Hickman, who becomes their rival in a motorcycle race. Zipper himself falls for Cassandra and joins her in the campaign. It all ends with the promotional motorcycle race. As in earlier films, various fading stars turn up in cameos, as well as the aforementioned Keaton and Rooney, who, the latter of whom did the film only to pay off a tax bill. Brian Donnelly turns up as Rooney's boss, while Elizabeth Montgomery turns up for a brief cameo referencing her role in Bewitched. With its claymation title sequence and fantasy elements, How to Stuff a Wild Bikini goes all out for Zanius and generally succeeds while still retaining the core elements of the series. 
Ghost in the Invisible Bikini, the seventh and final entry in the series, however, is less obviously a beach party movie. For one thing, it doesn't even take place on the beach, with the haunted house instead being the venue. Moreover, both of the regular series leads are missing, replaced by Tommy Kirk, who had previously starred in Pajama Party, and would have starred in How to Stuff a Wild Bikini if he hadn't been arrested for possession, and Deborah Wally, who had previously appeared in Beach Bank at Bingo in 1965. Plot-wise, it's pretty much a standard haunted house comedy, with Basil Rathbone manufacturing various ghostly goings-on in order to scare off the other potential heirs to a fortune. As ever in these sorts of films, they have to stay the night in the haunted house in order to claim their shares. But eventually, of course, falls foul of real ghostly apparitions. The latter are provided by Boris Karloff as the deceased benefactor who has to carry out one good deed in order to get into paradise. As he can't leave his mausoleum, the ghost of his lost love, played by Susan Hart, clad in an invisible bikini, part of a circus act she performed with Karloff 30 years earlier apparently, meaning that would have predated the invention of the bikini-style two-piece swimsuit, but what the hell, this is just a low-budget exploitation movie. But it's she who actually provides the supernatural mayhem on his behalf in order to frustrate the plans of Rathbone, Karloff's former lawyer. What makes it a beach party film are the presences of the nephew of one of the potential heirs, surfing buddies, and Eric Von Zipper and his biker gang who stumble into the action by accident. Ghost in the Invisible Bikini is clearly even more cheaply made than previous films in the series, with various sets recycled from AIP's Edgar Allan Poe films. Its main points of interest are the presences of veteran horror stars Karloff and Rathbone. Interestingly, the former's character wasn't even part of the original film, shot under the title Bikini Party in a Haunted House. When it was first delivered to AIP, executives were dissatisfied with the final product and ordered cuts in the addition of new footage. The latter forms a new framing story with Karloff and Hart, all of whose scenes were shot separately and edited into the film later. Indeed, it is painfully obvious that a blue-tinted heart has been rather crudely superimposed on existing scenes. The film, as released, is an anarchic comedy that is less obviously a beach party movie than its predecessors. It's actually far more reminiscent, than con- reminiscent of contemporaneous comedies like Hillbillies in a Haunted House, or even the various Haunted House entries in the 40s Bowery Boys and East Side Kids movie series. Nevertheless, it is quite good fun while it's on, although not very memorable. Boris Karloff look, looks like he's enjoying himself, not surprisingly, as he was getting paid for sitting around in a single set for a few days. Well, Rathbone gives a suitably irascible performance as an irascible character. As previously mentioned, despite the number of movies produced, the Beach Party series was a relatively short-lived phenomenon. Very much of its time is built on the popularity of the earlier Gidget series of films, as well as being in the Beach Party series. Deborah Wally was also the second actress to play Gidget, succeeding Sandra Dee in the role, and subsequent TV series, which provided a teenage Sally Field with her first lead role. But the whole surf culture thing was, by the mid-60s, pretty much played out in pop culture terms. The focus of AIP's youth-orientated exploitation films quickly switched 
to new fads like biker gangs, you know, obviously presaged by Eric Von Zipper and co in the Beach Party films, and drag racing. As I say, those films usually had the same cast as the Beach Party series. You know, characters just had different names and hung out in, you know, garages or whatever. Still, the Beach Party movies, with their combination of adolescent sexual tension and naive innocence, remain surprisingly enjoyable. She's the swingingest ghost you've ever yearned for, haunting a pre-will-reading seance. I thought I made it clear to you and your wretched crew that you would dispose of everybody before I read the will. What you have to do is to see that my rightful heirs get the money. Yeah, man, here's one haunted house the M-Gang wants to investigate. What are all these strange people doing here? Make the music pretty, play a happy song. Make the music pretty or I can't go on. Everybody's singing about a broken heart. Don't you know, can't you see it's tearing me apart now? Make the music pretty and I'll tell you why. Make the music pretty or you'll make me cry. Let me hear you play a happy melody. Come on and make the music pretty for me. Television repairman. Just take a look into my eyes. Looking for maybe sex and the single ghoul? The 1973's Black Snake is something of an oddity in the canon of Russ Mayer. Lacking the outsized breast fixation of the sex films that made his name and the budgets of his two films, The 20th Century Fox, it boasts an historical setting and has pretensions of being issue-based. In part an attempt to cash in on the early 70s black exploitation boom, Black Snake takes as its scenario a 19th century Caribbean slave revolt. Unfortunately, Mayer seems to have no real fuel for the subject, with both the historical details and the context of the story shaky, to say the least, and the injection of some clumsy humour in a misguided attempt at satire jars with the brutal violence on display. The plot, young Englishman masquerades as new accountant to a plantation 
situated on a private island presided over by a cruel aristocratic lady in order to discover the fate of her last husband, his brother, comes straight out of a 19th century melodrama, but proves inadequate as a vehicle to explore the issues surrounding slavery that the film clearly wants to make. Indeed, it feels like a collision between two different films, one a mildly farcical gothic mystery about the brothers' disappearance, the other a violent drama about slavery, with neither storyline doing much to advance the other. Disappointingly for Mayer fans, neither of the plot lines involves much in the way of sex. Not that sex isn't ever present. The Lady of the Manor is the subject of multiple attempted sexual assaults. The hero gets to bed both her and a black slave girl. The, uh, the overseer, when he isn't whipping slaves, seems sex-obsessed, while the leader of the plantation's private army of black French colonial mercenaries is rampantly gay. But despite all of this, there really isn't anything explicit or outrageous on offer in the sex department. The film's biggest problem is its shaky grasp of history. It's set in 1835, yet pretty much ignores the fact that slavery has been abolished to most of the British Empire, the exceptions being those territories that are controlled by the British East India Company, despite referencing abolition in some early dialogue. Well, it's true that former slaves weren't actually set free as such immediately, but rather had their slavery converted into apprenticeships, eventually resulting in full emancipation. It marked a, a fundamental change in their situation. They were now employees of a sort rather than property and had some legal protections. So the whippings and brutality shown in the film would have been highly unlikely at the time the film is set. Not the conditions for workers of any kind at the time were brilliant. The fact is that the movie simply doesn't reflect the actuality of the situation in British colonies at the time. Okay, I know that ultimately it's only an exploitation film, but by ignoring these basic historical facts, Black Snake fundamentally undermines the issue it's claiming to be exploring. The British Caribbean was in reality one of the last places you're likely to find a violent slave rebellion taking place in the 1830s. It also doesn't help that none of the protagonists on either side are particularly sympathetic. While the slaves' violent uprising is justified in light of the brutality meted out to them, their violent revenge is possibly even more brutal and guided by a demented religious fervour. After, after all the more farcical sh shenanigans up at the big house that preceded it, the sudden turn into murderous violence at the climax just feels jarring rather than shocking. But despite all of this, Black Snake still has plenty of positives. One thing, it looks great. The Barbados locations are shot by some cinematographer, Arthur Ornitz, to great effect, giving the film a far more expensive look than you'd expect for a low-budget exploitation piece. For, the, for another, the cast are actually pretty effective, despite the inadequacies of the script. David Warbeck approaches the lead for the most part as if he was in a British sex comedy, well, Anushka Hempel as the villainess plays a role to the hilt, spitting out racial epithets, ordering violent punishments, and generally contemptuous of the whole male sex. Veteran character actor Percy Herbert seems to be having the, seems to be having the time of his life as her overseer, leering dementedly at women, attempting to force himself on Hempel, and whipping every slave in sight in an enjoyably over-the-top performance, which is, which is a far cry from some of his appearances 
in, in British carry-on films. By contrast, Thomas Baptiste is the leader of the rebellion and Bernard Boston is the leader of the French mercenaries contribute somewhat more restrained performances. Indeed, it's to the latter's credit that his characterization of the captain in no way plays to the gay stereotypes usually seen in 70s exploitation films. While hugely entertaining, the performances of the main players nonetheless serve to emphasize the gulf between the ambitions of the two main storylines of the film. Most of them perform as if they're in a sex comedy, one of those bawdy British historical comedies of the 60s like Tom Jones, which fits in with the mystery plot that feels badly out of place in the slave rebellion plot. Not surprisingly, Black Snake wasn't a box office hit upon its release. Some of Mayer's excuses for its failure are more than mildly amusing. In particular, he blamed the British actors who apparently expected better on-set facilities, tea and umbrellas and folding chairs, is what he, he claimed they are expecting. Now, leaving aside the fact that the two leads were actually from New Zealand originally, I wonder if Mayer had seen any of the films he, they had previously appeared in. I don't think that either Warbeck or Hempel had ever appeared in a film with a, with a budget for tea between takes, let alone umbrellas and folding chairs. Likewise, Percy Herbert had spent his career toiling away in character roles, nor manner of low-budget movies and TV episodes. In truth, as Mayer himself conceded, his approach to the material was simply wrong. He felt that he should have gone all out for the gothic melodrama angle and produced something like, like Mandingo. Indeed, the overheated southern US setting of that film would have made far more sense in terms of the plot and brutality on show. Even with such a setting, though, the central part of the plot, the slave uprising, would still be historically problematic. Well, understandably, in view of a desire to appeal to the black exploitation audience, Mayer wanted to show black people empowering themselves and taking control of their own destinies. Historically, the abolition of slavery in both the UK and US was driven by wealthy white liberals and eventually achieved as the result of economic and political considerations. Personally, I can't help but feel that Mayer would have been better off taking a full-on bawdy British sex comedy approach to Black Snake, the setting and cast being more suited to such a take, a sort of carry-on-up-the-plantation. But the question is, is Black Snake, as made, worth watching? Well, yes, it is, after all, a Russ Mayer film starring David Warbeck, which is a combination nobody expected to see. Plus, despite its problems, there's still a lot that's enjoyable about the film. Sections of it are amusing and the performance is enjoyably over the top. It is, however, far more like, like one of his studio pictures than his earlier work. So if you're expecting lots of anarchic, big-breasted fun, you might be disappointed. As a coder, Anushka Hempel, after marrying into a title supposedly purchased the UK rights to both Black Snake and the Pete Walker film Tiffany Jones, which also made in 1973, in order that her nude scenes in both couldn't be seen domestically. Despite this, both films seem to have remained in circulation. Moreover, I'm not sure why she would have been worried about Black Snake, as Russ Mayer was so disappointed by the size of her breasts, he employed a bigger-breasted body double for some of her nude scenes. So it seems that these, so it was actually stunt boobs on view rather than hers. Russ Meyer's Black Snake. Time, 1835. 
the island San Cristobal, the evil Blackmore Plantation. Black Snake, the whip, Lady Susan, the enforcer. No man, black or white, escaped her island or her lash. Black Snake, dashing Ronald Sopwith, trapped in a volcano of terror in his search for Brother Jonathan. Black Snake, the brutal whip-wielding Joxer, and the sadistic Captain Raymond, commander of Lady Susan's personal army for hire. Black Snake, father against son, see the cruel hand of hypocrisy twist and turn two lives. Black Snake, the faithful Cleone, the beautiful slave maiden, burdened with the impossible decision, the love for her brothers, or that for the handsome stranger. Black Snake, boisterous action from opening scene to mind-bending climax. Russ Myers, Black Snake. So at what point do we start talking about Donald Trump's mental incapacity? I mean, as we, as we progress through an election year for the US, the rabid right-wingers are going all out on how Biden is senile because... Well, he's old and he sometimes seems to lose the thread when speaking in public. In fact, it isn't just the right-wing cranks who like to belittle Biden for his supposed senility. But the fact is that he never was a great public speaker. When he was vice president, when he was only in his 60s, he always seemed to be putting his foot in his mouth. Moreover, merely being old isn't in itself proof that someone is mentally incapable. Indeed, Biden's record in office would seem to contradict this idea. Contrary to what the rights propaganda would have you believe, employment levels have climbed under his administration, and the US economic performance has improved markedly in contrast to Trump's time in office. But getting back to the point though, Trump. If Biden's poor public speaking is proof of senility, then surely Trump's constant slurring of words, increasingly demented rantings, and his apparent disconnect from reality. He seems, for instance, to think that he has won his recent, his current civil cases, despite having more than $80 million of damages awarded against him in one of them, and even more than that, a, a, an even larger fine than that in the, other, in the other one. And surely this is more than ample evidence that he's completely and utterly gaga. Oh yes, let's also not forget that, despite having his Twitter account restored by Elon Musk, the world's village idiot, Trump still, isn't, still hasn't tweeted anything. Clearly he's too senile to remember his own login details. Yet nobody seems to want to talk about Trump's obvious descent into, into dementia. You can understand why his followers don't want to discuss it. In fact, as long as he's spending his time ranting to rallies of his most rabid fans, he can get away with it. They're as demented as he is, so he just seems normal to them. He could probably drop his pants on stage and take a huge dump and these loons would scream and applaud him. Even if he followed that up by taking a piss on them, they'd still cheer him. But his problems come when he starts displaying his mental incapacity away from his comfort zone. His court outbursts, for instance, drag adulation only from his hardcore fans, not the wider audience and, by extension, wider electorate who also see them. Yet still, the media seemed to hold back from actually coming out and highlighting his apparent senility. They are happy to repeat all the shit about Biden, 
but seemed reluctant to question his opponent's mental capacity. How far does Trump have to go before they do start reporting it more prominently? Does he have to come into one of his court hearings naked in an obviously confused state before masturbating furiously during witness cross-examinations? What is making inappropriate sexual comments to female court staff or even grabbing them by the pussy? At what point does his behaviour become erratic and scary enough for people to start seriously questioning his fitness for office? But hey, here in the UK, people had to elect a Tory government led by Boris Johnson, then endure a pandemic during which his incompetence contributed to tens of thousands of deaths, and his policies resulted in billions of pounds of taxpayers' money being paid out to, concert to Tory donors and old pals before they decided that he was unfit for office, despite this fact having been manifestly obvious to, to, the, to the rest of us for decades. So who knows when Trump will be publicly outed as a senile old fool. I mean, he's already had one disastrous term in office, but that apparently wasn't enough for some people to make up their minds.